Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burdick, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, March 4th. Man, woman, Putin, Putin, Putin. Think about it. On today's episode of the Roundup, we're going to think about patient safety. Specifically, we're going to think about President Biden's plan to improve patient safety in nursing homes and plans by CMS and the CDC to beef up our patient safety infrastructure. To tell us what they think about these two plans are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? Spring is in the air, the masks are coming off, and I find myself thinking about interoperability. <laughs> I attended a conference this week that required a vaccine passport and a rapid test. No problem, right? I've got a cool vaccine passport from Clear. The only trouble is, is that this conference required another company, All Clear, to administer the COVID test, and All Clear didn't accept my Clear vaccine passport. I had to waste half an hour entering my vaccine and booster shot information. Now I have test results on two different apps. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. As you guys know, I spent a few days in Disney and I clocked over 20 miles in two days, which is pretty impressive, but drowned myself in just the most incredibly unhealthy food still. And it's disgusting. And I will say though that Disney has this new ride in Adventures Campus called Web Slingers, and you, you literally sling webs from your wrists and it's a total workout interesting did you get that long tube of popcorn <laughs> i did not but i got maybe three dole whips in two days right. yeah that's excellent <laughs> all right thanks yeah. julie now before we talk about these latest ideas on how to improve patient safety i wanted to ask you about any patient safety problems you've encountered in your dealings with the healthcare system now i'm not talking about poor care or bad service but things that could have injured or killed uh, you or someone you care about dave any near misses for you my incredible mother-in-law who i've talked about before mary brady died from Alzheimer's in 2017. And, you know, near the end, the last couple of years, she was living in a high-end nursing home that had a coffee bar and free cookies, but we didn't like the care she was receiving. She'd fallen a couple of times, had bruises and a chipped tooth, wasn't talking much. And since she couldn't walk or feed herself by that point, there were long periods where she was left alone. So Terry and I decided to move her about two years before she died to a different facility so imagine our surprise that within a day after the move, she was walking again, feeding herself, smiling and laughing. The previous nursing home was clearly drugging and neglecting her. They sure knew how to bill us for services though, but their care delivery bordered on criminal. This was supposedly a five-star facility. I can't imagine what care must be like at these lower rated nursing homes. Pretty scary, thanks Dave. Julie, how about you? Anything that made you go, man, that was close. You know, I don't have any near-death experiences in my immediate family, thankfully, but I was on bed rest with my son for five weeks and the nurse would come in at two in the morning to take my blood. And the first night I was so groggy, I wasn't even paying attention. The second night I asked, is this still needing to happen? I'm pretty sure I'm here to stay and we're not needing to do this anymore. And sure enough, she checked and the doctor's order had not been noted properly in the chart. So there's the mishaps of communication that go down there are just, they're serious. 
Yeah, miscommunication. Thanks, Julie. Thankfully, nothing for me or my immediate family, but I do know two people whose moms died in the hospital from sepsis because their doctors didn't diagnose and treat their urinary tract infections until it was too late. Uh, you'd think UTIs in older women would be a universal red flag for sepsis right now, but apparently a couple of doctors didn't keep up on their medical literature. Okay, let's uh, get up to speed on this new plan to improve patient safety in nursing homes. On Monday, the White House announced President Biden's plan to improve poor care in many nursing homes, a problem that the pandemic exposed to all. The plan calls on CMS to pursue four new initiatives. One, minimum staffing requirements for nursing homes. Two, promoting private rooms for nursing home patients. Three, strengthening the skilled nursing facility value-based purchasing program, which ties payments to performance. And four, toughening guidance on the unnecessary use of certain drugs and drug treatments. Dave, I know that last one hits close to home. What do you think of Biden's overall plan and which one of these four initiatives has the best chance of making care safer for nursing home residents? Well, the Biden administration is well within their purview to step up regulation and accountability of nursing home operations. Kudos to them for doing so. I won't give you one, Dave. I'll give you three. I'm in favor of the minimum staffing standards, greater transparency, and more rigorous enforcement with higher penalties. I think those are all good things. And what the government should be doing to appropriately monitor an industry that's clearly underperforming. Just as an example, and this was in the White House report, a GAO study found 82% of nursing homes had an infection and control deficiency between 2013 and 2017, 82%. And that's before COVID, and things have gotten worse since COVID. I will say that an interesting line of attack is the Biden administration's emphasis on PE investment in nursing homes, which has increased more than 20-fold since 2000. Uh, PE companies now own 5% of all nursing home beds, and their facilities, when compared to other for-profit facilities, have higher costs, lower quality, and higher excess mortality. Nothing you want to be standing out on. And so when you read the White House fact sheet accompanying the announcement, they have this quote in there, the PE ownership model too often puts people over profits and is particularly dangerous when it comes to the health and safety of vulnerable seniors and people with disabilities. So they're going populist, the power to the people. From my perspective, private equity, and you've heard me say this before, has an amoral aspect to it. Like nuclear energy, it, it has beneficial and detrimental applications. PE chases profits like heat-seeking missiles and they will push revenues, cut costs, and squeeze quality if that helps the bottom line. So I'm okay with the Biden administration holding them more accountable um, for their performance. And then the last thing I'll say, and no surprise here, is the industry reaction was, we appreciate what the Biden administration is saying, but give us more money. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, throw more money at it. Thanks, Dave. Julie, any comments or questions for Dave? You know, I guess... I'm in the place where I'm not going to defend the private equity industry here, but I was surprised by how strong the thread was around private equity is evil in this, because there are a whole host of other nonprofit and for-profit models that don't live to good standards and aren't providing quality care. So Dave, is this really about ownership or is it about like what our regulatory framework is or how we think about the care that we want to incentivize? I couldn't agree with you more that overall the industry needs to improve. 
the administration is entirely appropriate in trying to raise minimum standards and improve performance writ large. Uh, HCA now owns uh, Brookdale, which I think is the nation's largest senior living chain. And, you know, the state of California is suing them right now. Manor Care, which has had all kinds of problems, was taken over by ProMedica and transferred to nonprofit. These wouldn't even be included in the, the PE statistics, but we know that there are issues there. It's easy to rally against PE, particularly with the progressive side of the Democratic Party. But just because it's easy to do doesn't mean that there isn't some truth there. There isn't an, an amoral quality to PE investing. I mean, if they see opportunity in value-based care, they're in with both feet and thank God for it. But if they see opportunity in value-depleting care, they also get excited about that and are in with both feet. Got it, Dave. Thank you. Now let's talk about this new patient safety strategy called for by CMS and the CDC in a new perspective in the New England Journal of Medicine, two quality leaders from CMS and two from the CDC said, quote, the fact that the pandemic degraded patient safety so quickly and severely suggests that our healthcare system lacks a sufficient resilient safety culture and infrastructure, close quote. Ouch. Specifically, they called for a new national patient safety strategy that features, among other things, radical transparency, sufficient staff resources, expanding the use of existing patient safety indicators, creating new patient safety indicators that include clinical data from payers, not just providers, covers diagnostic errors, and extends to outpatient care settings. Julie, what's your reaction to this admission of failure by CMS and the CDC? And what piece of the plan caught your attention and why? You know, honestly, this whole hospital-acquired conditions program feels like a well-intentioned design that is met with incredibly lackluster outcomes and is really made for relatively meaningless enforcement. And there's the co-director of an economics and policy center at WashU that said something that really kind of set the tone in my mind, which is when this program started, they thought that they would actually reach zero avoidable complications, but that hasn't been the case despite, you know, good effort on the part of many hospitals involved. So when you understand that and you understand that this program effectively penalizes the top quarter of hospitals that have the most the most violations or issues, then it makes sense. Like there's a threshold here that is kind of fake and hospitals sort of float in and out of the penalty zone, so to speak. So the federal government's penalized 764 hospitals um, for having the highest numbers of patient infections and potentially avoidable complications. And these hospitals are among, I don't know, there are three dozen of them or so who are also rated best in the country in Medicare's care compliance website. They have five stars. And these are hospitals like Cedars-Sinai in LA, Northwestern in Chicago, one of the Clinic Cleveland hospitals in Ohio, a couple Mayo hospitals in Minnesota and Phoenix. I mean, these are brand names we know who have these issues. And as I've really looked at everything that's going on here, you know, these hospitals are not necessarily investing in state-of-the-art surveillance systems to know every single issue they have. And they're also quite conflicted in terms of reporting. You know, it's not in their best interest to report. They do lose money, even though I think the amount of money that they lose, which is like, I don't know, something like 1% of Medicare payments over 12 months, doesn't seem to be a lot to some of them. 
And there's no longitudinal tracking, you know, over time. So it's a given time period. And like I said, if you're in that top quarter um, of have the most issues, you get penalized. So the program's just really at the end of the day, not working. And, you know, I come back to if we really focused on rewarding what we want out of care instead of developing these penalty programs that create this kind of fake way of penalizing hospitals, even though you think there's an incentive there, it doesn't quite work out well for these hospitals. Yeah, definitely not strict enough. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any comments or questions for Julie? The first thing that alcoholics have to do if they want to recover is admit they have a problem. And so in that regard, I think the authors of this report are being courageous and accurate in in sort of calling this out. I heard Dr. Fleischer, the article's lead author and the current CMS chief medical officer, speak on this specific topic at the conference I attended this week. He's impressive. And Fleischer emphasized the structural breakdowns in patient care delivery and the need to build more resilience into systems that enhance patient safety. You know, Julie, this feels like an opportunity for digital tech to increase monitoring, assure compliance, and relieve caregiven burden. Do you agree? And if so, what does that look like? Um, so any opportunity for digital seems like a good one these days. In this case, I'm not sure there's enough money at stake to make this a big market, honestly. So if you're looking at it as a real-time or retrospective view of what's gone wrong. So I come back to, you really want digital to be looking at how do you actually help support doing what's right? Yeah. And, you know, there are plenty of, I think, new innovations out there that are building on top of the EMR to automate care pathways, automate what we would have called decision support back in the day, but is you know, a new way of thinking about that concept. It enables communication patterns that can actually really be supported in workflow. And they could capture these issues along the way as they happen and actually document them in real time in a way that could support these organizations to learn and grow from them and not put them in the penalty bucket, if that makes sense. Interesting stuff. No, I, I think we have the tools to uh, improve patient safety. It's just that we lack the will, I think. Philosophically, I lean toward market innovation and away from government control, you know, like we all do. But when you blow your chance at self-regulation, you know, and I would include private accreditation in that, you invite government regulation. Great discussion. Now let's talk briefly about other big stories this past week. Julie, what other healthcare news should we have paid attention to? Well, I was struck by an NPR story this week on transgender challenges, particularly in the state of Texas, just massive depression, anxiety, mental health consequences from state law that is you know, preventing this population from really pursuing what it believes to be critical to its identity. It's such a reminder that we have a long way to go to really understand how people present as people and in health and got some states that are not figuring it out. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what other healthcare news was on your homepage this week? Now, I used to say above the fold, but someone who doesn't read newspapers anymore asked me what that meant. So we'll go digital. What's on your homepage? They did not. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I also pay their college tuition. So there's a hint. Julie, just on, on your comment, another reason to mess with Texas as far as I'm concerned. But back to my homepage, one of our foresight 
health contributors is Carrie Weems, and Carrie ran CMS during part of the George W. Bush administration and was on point during anthrax and SARS, led the effort to create the Strategic National Reserve, which we unfortunately depleted before COVID hit. And Carrie has three iron rules for pandemics. The first are, before a pandemic, any money spent is too much. Second iron rule is during a pandemic, any money spent is too little. And the third iron rule is people forget. So with that as background, I just wanted to highlight what Gavin Newsom is doing in California, trying to think about life after COVID and living with the threats of pandemics probably in more fundamental ways and what the state of California needs to do to get ready. I hope we see that type of forward thinking replicated in other parts of the country and maybe even by the federal government because it's not like we're never going to have a pandemic again. Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. You also can find a recording of this podcast and all our podcasts on the Healthcare Now Radio Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming services. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Burda for Foresight Health.